Beloved, this evening we turn to a, a really powerful text that's meant to encourage you, and yet at the same time, it is a, uh, a sobering text in terms of what we're going to focus on in verse 9. We're turning to Th 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. I'll read them all, but verse 9 is what we will be focusing on tonight in great detail. I, I want to give you a heads up. This is a bit of a lengthy sermon. Uh, there's a lot to explain and drive home. I'm going to give you a lot of extra commentaries and quotes to to, to, I think I can prove to you from the text what it's saying, but because there's different looks at it, and I think it's a pretty significant thing to be saying, I'm going to be giving you a lot of extra, uh, extra testimonies to, to what I'm going to be teaching you this evening. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10, with a focus on verse 9. Hear now the word of the Lord. And to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe because our testimony among you was believed in that day. Now notice again in verse 7, if you're troubled and you wonder about God's justice in this world, Christian, if you have the prayer as you were as the saints in heaven, the martyrs in Revelation 6, how long, O Lord, how long until you vindicate us? Trust it's coming. And in verse 9, we look at what we'll be focusing tonight. Who shall be punished? Those who don't believe the gospel, who reject Christ, who won't live for Christ, they shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. May God bless the reading, the preaching, the hearing, the believing, and the responding to his holy word. Recently, I heard a message by R.C. Sproul that had a profound example of God's omnipresence, that he's everywhere present. And I thought, well, this is a pretty powerful uh, thought that really drives home. If, if God is here, God is everywhere. God is everywhere, and he's outside of everywhere. He exists beyond time, as you saw a little while ago. He exists beyond any place. You can't really place him in a sense, and yet he is in every place at the same time. Hervin Bovink explains that infinity, as we studied with the Shorter Catechism number four about God, infinity applied to space is God's omnipresence. He's everywhere. Infinity, we saw as applied to time, is his eternity. What we want to look at tonight is God is everywhere. But Sproul pointed out something about God's presence, about the fact that God is everywhere that is really striking, and I don't think we think about it all the time. But I thought it'd be something that, it's something I couldn't quite get off my mind and I thought would be something profound to study tonight about God's omnipresence. God's presence includes being in hell. I couldn't find that message. It was a brief comment he made, but I did find something else by Dr. Sproul uh, that is more direct and more developed by him. It's a series called Hell. And you can find it on Ligonier.org. The first of the series, the first of the series about hell is called The Place of God's Disfavor. The Place of God's Disfavor. And from that message, I want to share with you a few things that he said that I think are quite striking. He says, often people will ask, is hell separation from God? That's often how we mainly think of hell, separation from God. Certainly God cast them out of his presence, Adam and Eve. But his answer is yes and no. Yes and no. Uh, hell is separate from, separation from God, yes, in the sense of the absence of God's benefits and benevolence that we enjoy here on this earth. Even those who are not in Christ. Reigns on the evil and the good. But then he says this. But if the people in hell could take a vote to depose or deport one person from their midst, 
That is, to expel one person from hell, I think that the universal vote would be given to God. Because the person who is most unwelcome in hell is God himself. And it would be wonderful for the people in hell if God would desert them altogether. He goes on to explain. The problem with hell is not simply the absence of God. It is the presence of God that is so difficult. Because in hell, God is present as he is omnipresent, as the psalmist declares, and then he quotes Psalm 139 that I'll read for you later. If God is everywhere in his being, then certainly he is in hell as much as he is anywhere else. And so the problem is, what's he doing there? He is there in his judgment. He is there in his punitive wrath. He is present in hell as the one who executes his judgment upon those who are there. Shudder to think of that when you consider that Peter, while on this earth, in Luke 5, verse 8, Jesus says, cast the nets. Lord, we've been fishing all night. We haven't caught anything. Go ahead, cast the nets over here. And they catch so much fish that they can hardly get the boats to land. And Peter turns to Jesus, and he doesn't say, wow, praise the Lord. Give me a, let me give you a hug. He says, Lord, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. He just has a sense of Christ and his glory and power. And because of his sin and knowing he needs to be reconciled to God in Christ, he's afraid of him. Please get away from me. Your presence scares me. Just like Isaiah 6 we've seen. After Jesus did that, please get away from me. How much more those in hell would like to say, Lord, get away from us. He never will. R.C. Sproul also says this, because this is our fundamental nature as sinners, to be fugitives from the presence of God. The very first sin evoked a response in Adam and Eve of fleeing from the presence of God and hiding themselves from him. And the last thing they wanted after they experienced guilt and shame was for God to be present. And you can multiply that infinitely as the experience of those who are in hell. He explains in Matthew 25 where Jesus says, In hell there will be weeping, great mourning, and gnashing of teeth. He says gnashing of teeth in the New Testament, grinding your teeth all angry and upset. He says that's always associated with hatred and fury in the New Testament. He writes, The more people spend time in hell, it's not that they improve in their relationship to God, but there's always room for deprovement and even greater hatred of their maker. You see, that's the unhappy revolt in hell. It'll just keep getting worse. They can't get away from him, and they hate him all the more. They can't get away from him, and they hate him all the more, which is exactly describing their life on earth. Now it's fully exposed. They can't get away from him, and they hate him all the more for it. They hate his rule, just like Satan. They don't want him over him. They hate that he punishes them. They don't repent, they just hate him more and rebel more. They're angry and upset and weeping and unhappy all the time. Just like all the world without Christ. Only they will not be able to hide from the reality that they deny when they lie to themselves and suppress the truth and unrighteousness as they do now, Romans 1. So again, we're looking at uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism number four. We have been going there for a number of sermons, thinking about different aspects of what is God? That is, who is God? What is he like? And the answer is, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, 
and unchangeable. In his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. We've looked at a number of things. Again, remember that Robert Raymond guides us in noticing that the whole summary is God is glory, but then God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in all these other attributes. He is all these things infinitely so, eternally so, unchangeably so. And tonight what we're going to be thinking about is the fact that he is infinite in his being. He is everywhere present. He is omnipresent. And he's outside of everywhere as well. He's beyond it. But he's in every place all the time at every moment. And as you remember, related to his eternity, past, present, and future, all at once for God. John Piper drives home the main reality of God's presence equally also being in a judging way in hell. He writes this. It is still in hell that no one can hide from the Lord or escape the terrible countenance of his anger. So God's power is present in hell as the one who sustains our being and the one who enforces justice and the one who maintains suffering. He is present in all the ways men do not want him to be present and none of the ways that believers enjoy his presence. You see, friends, those who continue in rebellious unbelief against Christ and his kingdom will be punished in hell forever and receive it directly from God himself there. I give you that as the main idea of our verse, verse 9, in its context. Those who continue in rebellious unbelief against Christ and his kingdom will be punished in hell forever and receive it directly from God himself there. Now, I do want to give a little time explaining something because there's some diversity of uh, exegeting the text surprising to me. Uh, but I want to I want to uh, drive home the point with with uh, addressing an issue here. Some translations and some commentators add the word away before the word from. So away from they would read it like this. Who shall be punished with everlasting destruction away from the presence of the Lord and away from the glory of his power. And so what they're looking to do is distance the idea of God's present punishing and the punishment they would try to interpret it and soften it as it's just being absent from his comfortable presence. The problem with that is everybody thinks hell's going to be great and go hang out with all my friends. We don't want to be in God's presence anyways. But that's not what's there in the Greek. Bear with me here as I, as I give you some things to think about and recognize here, because I think it just drives it home even more soberly. There is no word away in the Greek. There's only the word from. There's no away from. The King James Version, our version we use, the Geneva Bible, the Tyndale translation, none of them have the word away before from. It's just from. It's coming directly from God's presence, this punishment. They don't get away from God. He follows after them and punishes them. And eternally so. The awfulness of hell. That if you think about it too much, I expect you would faint. The Greek only has from. The word is apo. I don't know that I'm saying it correctly, but apo. And when it is in the genitive case, and it is in the genitive case here in this Greek part of our text, as Luo and Nida in their Greek lexicon point out, it means this. When it's in the Greek in the genitive case, as it is, it simply means this. An extension from a source which is actively involved in an activity or relation. So have that in view. No, not God. They don't obey the gospel. Verse 9, they shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the active direct source of the presence of the Lord, from the active direct source of the glory of his power. It's pretty scary.
you can you can see that this is so in the same use of the word in verse 7. Look at verse 7. And to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Nobody says away from heaven. From heaven, from the source. It's the same Greek word as the word from twice in verse 9. It's the source. It's coming from. And that's the idea. This judgment is coming from the presence of the Lord. And it's actually the face of the Lord in the Greek, literally. And from the glory of his power. So punishment in hell comes directly from God, not away from and in distancing. That would be more bearable, don't we understand? To not have God in hell would be more bearable, would be less of a punishment for rebellion and uh, not obeying the gospel of Christ. But God brings his full justice on those who have offended him and eternal God. Matthew Henry, on this text, 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 9, he writes this. This destruction will be everlasting. They shall be always dying and yet never die. Their misery will run parallel with the line of eternity. The chains of darkness are everlasting chains and the fire is everlasting fire. It must needs be so since, now hear this, the punishment is inflicted by an eternal God, fastening upon an immortal soul, set out of the reach of divine mercy and grace. Hear this, he says, this destruction shall come from the presence of the Lord, that is, immediately from God himself. Here, God punishes sinners by creatures, by instruments that is here on earth. But then in hell, he will take the work into his own hands. It will be destruction from the almighty, more terrible than the consuming fire, which consumed Nadab and Abihu, which came from before the Lord. It shall come from the glory of his power or from his glorious power. Not only the justice of God, but the almighty power will be glorified in the destructions of sinners. And who knows the power of his anger? Notice how he emphasized it will be coming from God directly and immediately. Now, to drive it home a little more, and admittedly, there are commentaries and translations that explain it other ways. Some of them will give you a footnote and say it could be this way. Let me share a few other thoughts. Edmonds, quoted by Jameson Fawcett and Brown, Bible commentary, says this of the verse, the presence of the Lord is the source Whence the sentence goes forth, the glory of his power is the instrument whereby the sentence is carried into execution. Now, they don't necessarily agree, but they recognize Edmonds is saying that's the way he thinks it should be understood. The Benson commentary says this of our verse. But this phrase, destruction from the presence or face of the Lord, as Bishop Hopkins justly observes, expresses not only that they shall be expelled from that joy and glory which reigns in the presence of God and of Christ, but that his presence shall appear active in their infliction of their punishment so that they shall find his wrath issuing forth like lightning to appeal and torment their spirits while his power glorifies itself in their ruin and misery. And if you don't like this, go to Romans 9. The Cambridge Bible for schools and colleges writes this of the verse. The preposition here seems after the word destruction to signify coming from rather than shrinking from the face of the Lord. The sight of their judge and his almightiness robed in fire and attended by his host of angels will drive these wretched men terror stricken into ruin. Their destruction proceeds from the face of the Lord. In his look, the evildoers read their fate. So we can imagine it will be with the murderers of Jesus and with malicious persecutors of his people. 
And they say, compare Psalm 34, 16 and Psalm 76, 7. The face of the Lord is against them that do evil. Who may stand in thy sight whence, when once thou art angry? One last commentary, Bengals Gnomen. It is a judicial procedure from the divine presence itself that will inflict punishment upon them from the face. Devils will not be the tormentors, for even in this life, bad men are not punished by devils, but rather by good angels. And in Psalm 78, 49, the phrase angels of bringing evil may even denote good angels. This face will be intolerable to them. They shall not see it, but they shall be made to feel it. What's especially important is the Old Testament reference for our verse that helps us understand it along with the explanation of the Greek. It's not away from the presence. It's the judgments directly from the presence and glory and power of the Lord. Just as in Revelation 6, verses 15 to 16, there it says it's the wrath of the Lamb that no one can get away from. They wish they could hide under rocks and they can't. And they reference Isaiah 2. Uh, here as well, what's being referenced, what's being talked about is alluding back to Isaiah 2 and quoting it in part. It's about the inescapable judgment of God coming upon the rebelliously wicked of the world, refusing his grace, insisting on their own merits, and refusing his eternal life in heaven in unbelief and a lack of repentance. So here is what our text is referencing, just as Revelation speaking of no one can get away from the judgment of the wrath of the Lamb, which is Jesus Christ. Isaiah 2, verses 10, 19, and 21. Enter into the rock and hide thee in the dust for fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty. And they shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth for fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty when he ariseth to shake terribly the earth. To go into the clefts of the rocks and into the tops of the ragged rocks for fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty when he ariseth to shake terribly the earth. See, this idea that they're going to want to run and hide from God on Judgment Day, or as Revelation says, from Christ on Judgment Day, and they won't be able to hide, even under the clefts of the rocks. They should have hidden under Christ and God, who is the cleft of the rock, the psalmist speak of, but because they didn't, they can't hide from him as their uh, punisher. They can't hide under the clefts of any rocks. They will be found out. He will shake the rocks. He will shake them out of the rocks. And he will bring his punishment upon them. But see, in hell, they're going to want to hide from him. And they will not be able to. They'll be exposed. They will not be to escape his punishing presence forever. Other scriptures that cry now, beware that you do not find yourself later crying, woe is me, I share with you now. Psalm 9 verse 5, thou hast rebuked the heathen, thou hast destroyed the wicked. Thou hast put out their name forever and ever. Psalm 139, 7 to 12, especially verse 8 that R.C. Sproul quoted earlier. Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee. Proverb 15, verse 11, hell and destruction are before the Lord. How much more than the hearts of the children of men 
Amos 9, 2 to 4. Though they dig into hell, thence shall my hand take them. Though they climb up to heaven, thence will I bring them down. And though they hide themselves in the top of Carmel, I will search and take them out thence. And though they be hid from my sight in the bottom of the sea, thence will I command the serpent and he shall bite them. And though they go into captivity before their enemies, thence will I command the sword, and it shall slay them, and I will set mine eyes upon them for evil and not for good. Jeremiah 23, 23 and 24. Am I a God at hand, saith the Lord, and not a God afar off? Can any hide himself in secret places that shall not see him, saith the Lord? Do not I fill heaven and earth, saith the Lord. And lastly, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 3, the letter from Paul just before this letter. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. There is no escaping God now on earth, and there is no escaping God later in hell. He cannot be outrun. He cannot be hid from. No one will ever get away from the presence of God. The question is, where would you like to be in his presence? In heaven or in hell? And your conscience knows you can't get away from him now. Here on this earth, though some may think and try to pretend they can escape him, he's everywhere all the time. William Hendrickson discusses the Bible and the life hereafter is his book, and he discusses hell, the different words for hell. I'd like to give those to you for a moment. That's, that's the topic of the place where God will be. The word hell in the New Testament, first of all, Hades, the Greek Hades is like Sheol in the Old Testament. It often refers to the abode of the state of the wicked's souls in punishment before final judgment, the intermediate state. There's a place where those who will have bodies raised for eternal hell and destruction to suffer body and soul. There's a place where their souls already suffer. It's in hell, but it has the sense that it's not the permanent final place. Gehenna is the other Greek word for hell. That is where the body and soul of the wicked will be after judgment day, suffering body and soul. And Hendrickson points out that Gehenna is based on the name Gehinnon, a valley where a high place was built, and the Israelites actually burned their children there later to the, to the false god Molech. Later, in 2 Kings 23, verse 10, we see that Gehinnon later became the place where Jerusalem burned their rubbish, and there was always a stink and a smoke arising as they would see it. And you can think of Sodom and Gomorrah. This became the symbol of hell. Jesus speaks it's of a place where the fire is never quenched. He says this, the point is not merely that there is always a fire burning in Gehenna, but that God burns the wicked with unquenchable fire, the fire that has been prepared for them, as well as the devil and his angels. And he references Matthew 3, 12 and 25, 41. But he does bring our attention to the word Sheol in the Old Testament. He explains it can have three meanings. This will matter in a moment from one of the verses he'll draw our attention to. Sheol in the Old Testament sometimes means the grave. You've been buried, dead. Sometimes Sheol means the state of death, that you're dead. But he says sometimes it means the place of God's punishment for the wicked, which we know as hell. And then he gives us one of the Bible verses, which is from the book that we're going through in the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy. It'll be a while before we get there. Deuteronomy 32, 22. It uses the word Sheol in the Hebrew. We have it translated as hell. And he says, this is one of those times. It means 
the place of final punishment. Deuteronomy 32, verse 22. Notice it's coming from God's presence. For a fire is kindled in mine anger and shall burn unto the lowest hell and shall consume the earth with her increase and set on fire the foundations of the mountains. It's God's anger that is kindling burning. Matthew Henry comments on Deuteronomy 32, 22, and he says this, It shall burn to the lowest hell, that is, it shall bring them to the very depth of misery in this world. The damnation of hell, our Savior calls it, as our Savior calls it, is the fire of God's anger fastening upon the guilty conscience of a sinner to its inexpressible and everlasting torment. Isaiah 30, verse 33, he references, From Tophet is ordained of old, yea, for the king it is prepared. He hath made it deep and large. The pile thereof is fire and much wood, the breath of the Lord, like a stream of brimstone, doth kindle it. Now that's a scary image, isn't it? God is in hell, blowing on the kindling to keep that fire going and raging and hotter and hotter. God's the one there. Similar to how fire came out of heaven down upon the prophets of Baal in their showdown with God's prophet Elijah. Came straight from him. As well as it relates to this topic in terms of the source of punishment, though in a more temporal sense, Jeremiah 15, 14 and chapter 17, verse 4. And I will make thee to pass with thine enemies into a land which thou knowest not, for a fire is kindled in mine anger, which shall burn upon you. My fiery anger will burn upon you. And thou, even thyself, shall discontinue from thine inheritance that I gave thee. And I will cause thee to serve thine enemies in the land which thou knowest not. For ye have kindled a fire in mine anger, which shall burn forever. James 4, verse 12, the first part says this. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 32 and 33, I'd like to share a few parts from. It's the closing of the whole Confession of Faith, and it's speaking of the last times in the judgment. Chapter 32 of the Confession of Faith, section 1, reads in part this way. The souls of the wicked are cast into hell, where they remain in torments and utter darkness, reserved to the judgment of the great day. Confession of Faith 32, section 3, the first part. The bodies of the unjust shall by the power of Christ be raised to dishonor. Chapter 33 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, section 2, reads in part, The wicked who know not God and obey not the gospel of Jesus Christ shall be cast into eternal torments and be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. That sounds really familiar. It's our text this evening. And it's preceding verse. In flaming fire, verse 8, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. And again, from him as the source in his omnipresence there. 
Dr. Michael Horton, who is the systematic professor at Westminster uh, Theological Seminary in California, uh, in, uh, in Escondido, not far from here. He's also the founder and editor and host of the White Horse Inn radio program and Modern Reformation magazine. Explains in his article with the Gospel Coalition website, he says this, hell is not horrible due to alleged implements of torture or its temperature. After all, it is described variously in scripture as outer darkness and a lake of fire. Whatever the exact nature of this everlasting judgment, it is horrible ultimately for one reason only. God is present. He says, God who is present everywhere at all times will be forever present in hell as the judge. Further, he explains, hell is not ultimately about fire, but about God. Whatever the exact nature of the physical punishments, the real terror awaiting the unrepentant is God himself in inescapable and his inescapable presence forever with his face turned against them. And lastly, he says this. Judgment consists in being excluded from God's presence and the source of all blessedness, but not from God's omnipresent lordship. Herman Bovink will help us. He says God is present in all things and all things are present in God. To find out where he is is difficult. He goes on to explain, you can't really say God is in a place. You can't place him. He's beyond place, and yet he's in every place. He goes on to say, so it's hard to place him, but to discover where he is not is even more difficult. If he were confined to any place, he would not be God. He does not act upon the world from a distance. But with his whole being, he is present powerfully here and everywhere with respect to his essence and power. He is present in hell as well as in heaven. And so he goes on, Boving, Herman Boving goes on to say this, it is useless to deny this divine omnipresence. We experience it in our heart and conscience. Since there is one, capital O, referring to the Lord, since there is one more inward even than thyself there is no place whither thou mayest flee from God angry but to God reconciled there is no place at all whither thou mayest flee wilt thou flee from him flee unto him indeed flee unto him in Christ Fear this judgment that you would turn and flee to him and have that judgment taken for you on the cross while there is yet time to have that be done for you. Don't fear what man may think or do to you about it for being a Christian. Rather, Matthew 10, verse 28, Jesus says, Fear not them which kill the body but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Speaking of God, God destroys the body and the soul in hell, and it's an everlasting destruction. God does it. Fear him. Turn to him for eternal life. Turn to him and Christ on the cross and his perfect life and the resurrection. If you reject all that, if you are the person spoken of in verse 8, verse 9 is going to be your eternal reality. You think you can escape God now? You can't. And you won't escape him later. Only it will be a more personal, powerful presence of punishment. There'll be no denying him then. You'll be screaming against him and yet on your knees confessing he's Lord as your judge. 
Revelation 14, verses 9 to 11. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image, and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. You hear that? Without mixture. Full on wrath. No getting away from it and distancing it. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. That's Jesus Christ. And the smoke of their torment ascending up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image. And whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Beloved, hear what I will say next, which I've preached to you before in other contexts about hell, but never so focusing on the fact that it will be God's presence there punishing you and such. You don't want to go to hell. You do not want to go to hell. God will be there also waiting for you. And there'll be no escaping him there. There'll be no denying him and lying to yourself there about it. God will find you there and God will punish you there. Rather, pray that you can say what you sang tonight in Psalm 16. As David delights in the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who will be raised from the grave. As Peter says, he's talking about as a prophet, knowing he's speaking of the resurrection of Christ. Therefore, Christ is this Messiah who won't stay in the grave. And therefore, we won't. May you instead be able to say for yourself Psalm 16, 10 and 11 now and therefore for eternity. For yourself, as David did of Christ and the resurrection and himself in Christ. For thou will not leave my soul in hell. Neither will thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Why would you want to be in God's presence in hell? With all that you've heard about it, when instead you can be in God's presence in heaven, when you hear about that. May you also be able to say for yourself now and forever, Psalm 86, verse 13, For great is thy mercy toward me, and thou hast delivered my soul from the lowest hell. Remember also a parable that I, I agree with my professor in seminary at the time. I think it's a true story Jesus, Jesus is sharing from his own observation. Luke 16, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus is poor, begging for crumbs under the table. The rich man has everything he wants. They both die. And now the rich man is in hell. And Lazarus is in heaven. And the rich man looks across the chasm that cannot be crossed. But he sees and he is aware. He is consciously suffering in fire and thirst. And he's asking for some kind of relief as he sees a visible awareness of Lazarus in heaven. And yet he has refused relief from Abraham. You cannot escape God's judgment now and you won't be able to escape it and cross over later. Jesus will either be your justifier or your judge now and in eternity. He will either be your expiation or your executioner, now and in eternity. But you will find him as the second person of the Trinity everywhere. He said judgment will not come from the Father as much as from him. As mediatorial king, when he returns and separates the sheep from the goat, the wheat from the chaff, he will summon, he says. He says in Matthew, it will be he who summons all to be raised from the dead. And to separate and judge them for eternity. And how will he raise them from the dead? Simply by speaking the sound of his voice. The same voice that created the universe just by speaking. It's an awful thought, this hell. Especially it's an awful thought of God being there in your presence, in his presence. Exacting the punishment. 
So much so, as I've said before, I can understand why people don't want to think about it and they want to deny it. And so many say that there is no hell. There is just annihilationism. Those who don't trust in Jesus are annihilated. They don't exist anymore. That is clearly not what Jesus says. It's clearly not what Paul says. There will be an everlasting death, an everlasting destruction, as was said, a dying but never dying that wish they could be annihilated. But also there is not simply being absent from God in hell. Hell is not just simply being absent from the presence of God and his blessings. Hell is much worse. God is everywhere, including there in hell. And he will be the one punishing the unrepentant there forever. Though you would hide behind rocks, God, the rock for his elect, will eternally be crushing the damned. William Hendrickson concludes with this thought, and I hope you're listening. Instead of rejecting this, as much as you might be tempted to go to annihilation as your doctrine, which is not the scriptures, or believing it's just away from God's comfortable presence, but surely not his presence punishing us forever with fire. He says, instead of rejecting this, everyone should strive by means of childlike faith in Jesus Christ to escape it. That's the point of this message tonight. While today is still the day of salvation, escape the awful wrath of God with you in hell. Turn to him in Christ in faith, in repentance, for mercy, for eternal life by his merit and not your own. His payment of hell for you on the cross, body and soul. Such is the kingdom of heaven. Dearly beloved and dear friends, be sure you have turned to Christ and the cross and his resurrection to enjoy God's goodness in heaven. Now, if you do not and you reject him, you will find indeed for yourself. You will find indeed for yourself. God himself is present in hell, punishing unbelievers. That is the message for you to take with you tonight from our text. God himself is present in hell, punishing unbelievers. Believe and be saved. Be saved from that. Be saved from God there. Be saved unto God's glorious, beautiful presence in heaven. Let us sing. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, as we have sung about in Psalm 16, I pray that it will be true that everyone knows you savingly now, that believes and obeys the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that knows the Father by knowing the Son whom he has revealed. I pray that is true for all of us, for we cannot escape your presence anywhere, ever. Let us know you in your glorious presence where there is fullness of joy at thy right hand with Christ, where there are pleasures forevermore in heaven, having trusted in you and died to ourselves, rather than die eternally in hell in your presence as our judge, punishing us forever where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Lord, let, let your salvation be had while today is the day, while there still is an opportunity to enter your rest. And let we saints, as is said in the text, let us who are troubled by the world and all those who reject you and shake their fists and persecute and kill your prophets, kill your people, let us take comfort as they pray, even as the martyrs in Revelation 6, how long, O Lord? The answer is, There'll be a time when all is fulfilled, 1 Corinthians 5.25 from this morning, and you will consummate your kingdom, and you will throw Satan into the lake of fire with the demons and with all those of Babylon that has fallen. There will be justice, eternal justice, for you are good and you are righteous 
and you are just. Thank you, Lord, that we can turn to you through Jesus Christ who takes your justice for us on the cross and makes us righteous in him, that we would say the Lord is our righteousness. And so we enjoy your blissful presence in heaven. We pray, Lord, that you would drive this home and give us the courage to witness to others about it. As I had heard someone recently hearing about how the second coming will be like the days of Noah, only it will not be a flood of water, but it will be fire. And they started going back to church because they don't want to experience that fire. Indeed, Lord, let it, let it frighten us to have the fear of the Lord, to depart from evil and have knowledge and know you savingly and eternally. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and all your people said, Amen. Beloved, would you open your Psalters with me to close with page 133, Psalm 67, page 133. Please stand. Da 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 da. Lord bless and pity us. Shine on us with thy face, that the earth, thy way, and nations all may know thy saving grace. Let people praise thee, Lord. Let people all thee praise. Oh, let the nations be glad in songs their voices raise. Thou justly of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all.